HMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined today by Dr. Norbert Goldfield, who is the founder and director of Healing Across the Divides. He has spent a lot of time in Israel. He has spent a lot of time on the West Bank and in Gaza. I would appreciate your perspective today, doctor, on what is occurring in Israel, what is happening uh, in Gaza. Before we start, I'd appreciate it if you would take a minute and share with our listeners what your organization is, what it does, and your at least overarching perspective on the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Again, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, My name is Norbert Goldfield. I'm a Northampton resident, and I founded Healing Across the Divides uh, now almost 20 years ago. Our mission has remained the same, which is to measurably improve the health of marginalized Israelis and Palestinians through working with community groups that are on the ground. Uh, We've been doing that uh, for the past 20 years. We are pleased to see, because we asked the groups to measure it, that we've been resulted in the improvement in the lives of over 250,000 people. Our perspective needs to be uh, with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian war. Right now, there's a war that's going on. This is not a conflict. This is a war. Uh, uh, It is uh, very much influenced by the fact uh, that our board of directors are Arab Americans, Jewish Americans, and Americans interested in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and currently a war. We have an Israeli Jewish representative and a Palestinian Muslim representative in the West Bank, Israeli Jewish representative. And I'm so, so happy at a at a very simple, simple human level that uh, a few days ago, our Israeli Jewish representative uh, who has lost people that she's known, our Palestinian representative who's in the same situation, and our communications director uh, who... Uh, lives in Tel Aviv, whose street was bombed, uh, they talked amongst each other as to uh, how to go forward. Uh, that's That gives me a minuscule amount of hope. All right. Well, let's stay with hope for a moment, minuscule though it may be. What is the hope? How does this war, how does it resolve? Can it resolve? Oh, it will resolve. There's no question about that. That's uh, there will be a resolution. The question is, is what will it look like? There are uh, posters right now on streets in Israel which says uh, that every person in Gaza will be killed. Uh, there is hatred on both sides. Uh, and the question is, in my mind, and now I'm speaking for myself, I'm not speaking for healing across the divides, uh, is what should the United States be doing? Uh, even though we uh, we all know that we, uh, the United States is an increasingly fragile country, but yet we are still the most powerful country in the world. Uh, I definitely agree uh, with uh, Biden's uh, statements uh, expressing solidarity uh, with what happened on the uh, that past Saturday, uh, that tragedy of civilians being killed, uh, and I'm definitely there. Uh, then we need to go forward. The United States needs to go forward and say, okay, where do we go from here? Uh, And the United States is in a unique position uh, to address some of these issues. Well, address the issue, if you would, for us, of Hamas, which is a terrorist organization, which carried out horrifying attacks on civilians 
and murdered children and, and elderly people, civilians, and takes the position that all Israeli settlers are soldiers, so they're all legitimate targets. How can this resolution occur if there is a terrorist organization that is running, as a practical matter, Gaza? So uh, we don't know how this is all going to end. There's no question about that. Uh, And so for me to opine how that's going to end is, frankly, silly uh, for me to state. But I will make the following observation. There is a percentage of Israelis, which is increasing, and there's a percentage of Palestinians, which is also probably increasing today, that refuses to accept uh, Israel's right to exist, period. And, uh, um, and there's a percentage of Israelis uh, for approximately 10 to 15 percent, which is also probably increasing as a consequence of what happened, that refuses to accept the Palestinian right to exist. I still believe, as we go forward, that those people will still be present. So you can eliminate, uh, uh, you know, as you know, Israel has done over the last 48 hours, has eliminated two of the commanders uh, that perpetrated the uh, horrific attacks. But there will be others who don't accept Israel's right to exist uh, who will take the place. And that same issue will occur also in Israel, which is to say there are Israelis who refuse to accept the Palestinians right to exist as their own, uh, in their own uh, land. I would appreciate if you could help me understand this. The terrorist attack by Hamas on the Israeli festival, the music festival, on the kibbutzim, on uh, civilians, was not intended to destroy the state of Israel, to drive all the uh, Jews and Israelis into the sea. It was intended, as I understand it, to really make terrorism a more prevalent part of Israeli society. How would an uh, invasion of Gaza, how does that deplete Hamas? How does it make it less effectual? Why isn't Gaza in many ways a trap for Israel and perhaps what Hamas wanted to effect? Well, the first part of your statement, uh, I would in a positive way kind of reframe it a bit, which is to say there's no question in my mind, and I think there's no question in everybody's mind, uh, uh, and even the United States, I think to an extent, even uh, the uh, presidential uh, leadership uh, understand that the Palestinian issue, which everybody, don't, don't forget, let's, uh, let's not forget the Netanyahu uh, gave a presentation at the United Nations a few weeks ago uh, that showed a map of the Middle East that didn't show any evidence of any Palestinians anywhere. Uh, and the reality is what Hamas has accomplished, uh, tragically, in, a, in the most horrific manner, is that no one can argue that the Palestinian issue is not front and center anymore, which is to say, well, how do does the United States and how do Israelis and how do Palestinians now engage uh, with the issue of the Palestinian right of self-determination, while Israelis have the right to live in a secure borders. That issue, until three weeks ago, was not on the map. Everybody was saying, well, there'll be peace with Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, they'll give some extra money to Abbas, to the Palestinian Authority, 
and uh, everybody will be okay. Well, guess what? That's not okay. And we'll just have to see what will happen next. But I believe uh, uh, absolutely that the United States could play a much stronger role right at this time, much stronger role right at this time, not just the issue of having a ceasefire, but really to go beyond it and say where we can go and take this horrific set of events and really uh, have a leapfrog into a, a better space. We have to have a little bit of hope, but that's what I see. What do you make of the destruction of the hospital yesterday and the claims, Israel claiming this was not our missile uh, and the Palestinians and Hamas saying, oh, yes, it was. How's that going to get sorted out? And what do you think the effect will be? I think it's just going to exacerbate. Obviously, I know nothing more than you do with respect to actually what happened. But there's uh, no question in my mind, it will sharpen the focus, asking uh, the Israeli political leadership is exactly what is the objective of this entry into, uh, uh, into, into Gaza. We shouldn't forget, by the way, that there is a portion of the Hamas political leadership that is already established in the Gulf states. You know, so some of the uh, some of the leaders uh, have been there for quite some time. The political leaders, obviously, the local political leaders uh, and the military leaders are local. But there are elements of Hamas that are already uh, already out. And again, my point is the fact that there is a percentage and whether you want to call it Hamas or call it another name, there's a percentage on both sides that refuses to recognize the right of each other to exist. It's going to take the leadership of the United States, the leadership of Israel, the leadership of the Palestinians to make a difference. And I think the United States could make the biggest difference. One last question on that specific topic, Uh, Norbert Goldfield, Dr. Norbert Goldfield, the founder and director of Healing Across the Divides. Does Hamas speak for people, the residents of Gaza? There hasn't been an election since 2006, and there's a huge debate one of the huge debates going on now, which is why didn't they, the Palestinians overthrow Hamas if Hamas does not speak for them? I, I don't subscribe to that uh, line of argument. But does Hamas, in your opinion, actually represent the people of Gaza in a significant way, or is it just a terrorist organization that has taken over the rule of that land? The challenge that we have uh let's let's not forget that within israel uh they've had two horrific events one was the judicial reform which was front and center until very recently and now we have uh this uh, set of events uh yeah and let's not forget that part of the issue of the judicial reform was so that netanyahu could stay out of jail so we have weak leadership on both sides the question is is who do they uh represent and how do we go forward so we at Healing Across the Divides, we will, uh, that's what we have an emergency campaign uh, to, and we will decide over the next week which kind of groups uh, that uh, we will su- give support because there are some very dire needs, uh, not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and in Israel. Uh, but it's going to be the United States, you know, which is considering huge amounts of money, $10 billion. Combined Jewish philanthropies in the United States has already announced that they've raised almost $400 million in the last week for Israel. So the huge amounts of dollars that are available. Yesterday, I was on a call 
uh, with respect to uh, Gaza refugee agencies. Nobody's getting almost anything into Gaza. So there's there's a lot of moving parts. We will do our very, very small part at Healing Across the Divides. Uh, but I think the United States, in terms of political leadership, can and should do a lot more, taking advantage of this tr- totally tragic time. Uh, Dr. Goldfield, this is Buzz. And as far as the U.S., uh, I do understand what you're saying, but the U.S. influence, there have been a number of in- incidents in the past year about settlers who are alleged to have gone in and murdered Palestinians in their home, including children, and Israeli police forces doing nothing about it, and the United States ambassador being asked to look into this um, and a refusal. The Al Jazeera reporter, Akhleh, who was shot and killed by Israeli forces, the U.S. was asked to do something. Uh, the fact that, in regards to Bill's question, most Gazans can't vote. We Our electoral system is... You know, in distress here in the United States, we have taken no action to make sure that Gazans can actually vote. And the allegations are that precious few elected Hamas and Hamas grabbed that and ran with it. I'm, I'm wondering, and I know that you, you also mentioned Saudi Arabia, uh, but, uh, and Iran is a major force. What influence does the United States have to really impact what either uh, the Palestinian forces do or what Israel does? The way I would frame it is, what's the ask? There's no question that already, and this was reported yesterday, that the United States is negotiating and uh, working with Qatar, uh, which has uh, a significant influence in the region. So I, and what they're trying to do is possibly look at issues pertaining to hostages and, and immediate ceasefire and so on and so forth. So I, I get that. But I'm making the argument that we need to do more. So the United States by itself we live in a global community. We all know that. But the United States does have significant leverage and can work with Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, to uh, Turkey, uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, look, and look and be aspirational uh, with respect to what happens next. I also want to just uh, go one step further and point out that for those who don't know, Al Jazeera takes a different perspective than U.S. media. And the New York Times and the Boston Globe always reads based on what comes out of the press releases and what our reporters see uh, as Americans there. But Al Jazeera has a different perspective. That is funded almost 100% by the uh, Qatar government, um, which I always found very interesting. Um, But it does does give a different perspective, and it's always um, more expansive than what we get from the U.S. And Al Jazeera always talks about the lack of U.S. exerting its influence um, because there's such resistance to the U.S. We've lost credibility in the wake of 9-11. What say you to that? The reality is, is that, as we know, over the last few days, the United States has lost even greater credibility. Uh, 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 and I should, I should make it clear that, at least from my personal perspective, that it was absolutely correct of what Biden said in terms of the overall uh, uh, solidarity uh, on uh, on the initial tragic events. Then the question comes up, and this is where uh, Arab Americans, there was an article in today's New York Times, uh, there was also an article in Politico about this, where Arab Americans have said, I understand, but now where do we go from here? And uh, we just need to, to, to see the possibility and the reality uh, that Palestinians uh, have no right to self-determination 
and uh, just in, uh, not making any statements as to what is a credible path forward, working with our allies, uh, that that is st- still missing as far as I'm concerned. But the reality is Healing Cross Divides will continue to do its small part, but it's measurable, and we will forge ahead. We are speaking with Dr. Norbert Goldfield, who is the f- director and founder of Healing Across the Divides, the Northampton-based organization seeking alternatives to war. Dr. Goldfield, we'll be back with you in just a second. But I must go along till the Lord comes and calls, calls me away, oh yes, well the morning so bright. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hanger Pub and Grill? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hanger Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hanger Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game. After work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton-based Dr. Norbert Goldfield, who is the founder and director of Healing Across the Divides. We are talking about the Israeli-Hamas war. I have a remedial question. There has been enormous criticism of Israel for the blockade of Gaza. Not a path I want to go down in great detail now, but it raises for me the question, given the... Uh, blockade of Gaza. How did Hamas come to have thousands and thousands of missiles that could be deployed against Israel? Could you help me understand that? 
Well, the uh, the smuggling is available, uh, you know, and and we just have to. Uh, uh, the smuggling routes are 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 well known through uh, uh, not just through Israel but also through Egypt. So obviously, they're not going to get the parts, uh, uh, the major parts through Israel, but these even small parts can uh, can be aggregated together. Uh, you know, the the reality is is that this was the worst intelligence failure that Israel's ever, ever had, uh, completely surprised, uh, and a degree of sophistication. And uh, there are just many, many ways uh, that this can be done. Do you, Dr. Goldfield, have specific suggestions what should be done today by either Biden in Israel and or groups here in the United States? So the... Uh, I was told, in fact, by you, you told me that there was a full-page ad today uh, uh, regarding a ceasefire. Uh, there was another group of, uh, of Jews if, from an organization called If Not Now that uh, demonstrated in, uh, and were arrested uh, on Monday uh, advocating for a ceasefire. So as far as I'm concerned, the first step uh, in terms of a ceasefire has to be married uh, with a release of hostages. Uh, and at the same time, and at the same time, uh, this is going to be uh, uh, a very difficult situation. But at least the majority of the Hassan, uh, Hamas and Al Qassam, which is the more militant than Hamas, uh, if, if that's possible, uh, has to be uh, addressed as to whether or not they're allowed to stay there, or whether they move after negotiations between the United States uh, and Israel and the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia. So I think that the the immediate issue has to deal with the uh, hostages and the cessation uh, and, and ceasefire. The two have to be tied together. But at the same time, and this is where the United States, I believe, could be much stronger. It's the United States, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority commit today uh, uh, for an independent Palestine. That's going to be difficult, certainly, for this Israeli government. But the uh, underlying challenge that exists is that there has to be a right of Palestinian self-determination, while Israel, at the same time, uh, has to have a sense of security. And that almost happened, uh, and, uh, except for this attack, which now has been put in the, uh, the, the uh, back burner. And what am I talking about? Is the... Uh, not only peace with the Gulf states, but also peace with uh, 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 with Saudi Arabia. So I believe that the United States could really jumpstart a process which seemed to, at least in part, be almost ready to happen, but without the Palestinians. But now everybody in the world knows that the Palestinian right to self-determination has to be part. Uh, they cannot be just put shunted, shunted aside. And we will do our part in healing across the divide. And that's my question, Dr. Goldfield. Does this conflagration, this horrible war, does that make it more difficult for Healing Across the Divide to continue, foment its, its mission of Healing Across the Divide, or does it make it uh, make people understand that the need is that great and make it more accessible for people to heal across the divide? Tragically, the answer is clear. It makes it more difficult. But, but and here's the big but, there, I've been on several calls with people uh, uh, and organizations working with Palestinians, working with Israelis, working with joint Israeli-Palestinian efforts. There is no choice but to go forward. 
there's no other choice. You know, you might one uh, each party is saying there's no other partner, but we have no other choice to go, to go forward. These are two uh, nationalisms, two peoples that are on the same land. No question that the uh, difficulty is increased, uh, but we stand by those organizations. Like we sent out an email yesterday to uh, all our supporters, uh, quoting from one of the organizations that's a joint Israeli, Jewish, and Palestinian effort. Uh, and they talked about how it's more difficult, but they're doing what they can. And it's our obligation, our responsibility, ethically and morally, to stand by them and to go with them at their pace which is reduced, but there's no other choice but to go forward. Last question for you, Doctor. Your staff, your members of Healing Across the Divides who are stationed in uh, Israel and on the West Bank and in Gaza, are, are they safe? Uh, first of all, we don't have staff in Gaza, but the bottom line is they themselves are safe. They've all lost uh, loved ones, uh, and, uh, but they're still talking to each other. And that's what gives me the minuscule amount of hope, as I said at the beginning of this conversation. We've been speaking with Dr. Norbert Goldfield. He is the founder and director of Healing Across the Divides. Good luck. Thank you for being with us. We really appreciate your perspective and your insights, Dr. Really, it's been invaluable talking to you. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Earl Miller, the director of Amherst Community Responders for Equity, Safety, and Service Department, known as CRESS, has resigned. Miller had been on paid administrative leave for the last two months, pending an internal investigation. And at Monday's town council meeting, town manager Paul Balkeman announced that they would begin the search for a new director of the Unarmed Community Responder Program, which started last year. Three of the eight original members of the CRESS department have resigned. Miller has started a GoFundMe campaign to raise $10,000 to get through a, quote, tricky situation. East Hampton police are investigating a white supremacist group that left flyers on many East Hampton residents' lawns and driveways early Monday morning. The flyers were signed by the National Social Club and called for men of European descent to rally against the enemies of our people. Police are working to determine whether the flyers constitute hate speech or whether the only illegal act in distributing the flyers was littering. Last Saturday night, members of the same nationalist group held a protest and chanted anti-immigrant slogans outside of Governor Maura Healey's home in Arlington. The Greenfield City Council will be meeting tonight and will hear a first reading to repurpose $289,000 in funds previously authorized for police station upgrades for a new dispatch communication system. Fire Chief Robert Strain and Police Chief Robert Haig spoke to the Ways and Means Committee last night about the importance of replacing their current dispatch communication system that has failed during a recent storm, leaving dispatch to run off a portable system. Mixture of sun and clouds today with a light breeze, a little warmer, a high of 60 to 64. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Partly to mostly sunny on Thursday, the brightest day of the week with a high of 62 to 66. Scattered showers on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Build a stone wall? How hard can it be? One stone on top of another. Stones aren't Legos, and you're not a stonemason. Call Beyond Landscape, the take back your weekend people. They'll build that wall and that patio and the steps. You want a pond? Call Beyond. Schedule now. They get busy. Well, not as busy as you. Take back your weekend. Book a fall cleanup, a stone wall, a pond, a patio. Go Beyond. Call Beyond Landscape. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are joined by Quavery Rothenberg, who is the candidate for Ward 3 City Council, the Ward 3 City Council seat in Northampton in the upcoming election. Quavery, thank you for joining us in the studio. I'd like to ask you to take a minute and explain to listeners why you say you are qualified to be a city councilor in Northampton. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, I can tell everyone in Ward 3 that I have been working very diligently for all of you to put us in a great position to have wonderful relations with the city, with our state reps, with fellow residents. And of course, in Northampton, we have a plethora of wonderful nonprofits. We've got public housing. We've got harm reduction people. We've got so many people in Northampton working together to do great things for us. And what is the work that you've done? What's your background in uh, representing and or being part of the fabric of the political community uh, and the uh, social service community in Northampton? So my specialty is working with all of those people. And what I've been doing primarily for the past two years is working with the Ward 3 Neighborhood Association. We're a group that meets monthly. And I've been facilitating meetings to which the public is invited and we get into whatever issues are happening in Ward 3 that need some assistance. And that could be as simple as a trash removal. And that could be as complex as someone alleging that they're feeling microaggressions from a person with power. And we want to delicately get in there and support those people and understand how we can make our institutions thrive and how we can take care of each other. So I've been essentially apprenticing with Jim Nash in that forum 
and learning a lot from the people who've been at the Ward 3 Neighborhood Association for 20 years. It's a really kind group that tries to find consensus and tries to support our schools, especially, especially Bridge Street School. Jim Nash, we should note, is the present Ward 3 City Councilor and, in addition, is the president of the Northampton City Council. I would like to ask you about some specifics with regard to issues that are roiling not only Ward 3, but the city itself. Where do you stand with regard to the downtown Northampton plan? Oh, the redesign? Yes. I'm terribly excited about it. I think it's going to be fabulous. I mean, if you think about it, I think we put in about $1 million for the design, and then I think DOT is picking up the tab on everything else, which is about $21 million. So this is an incredible gift and opportunity for us to make things more accessible. I think our businesses are going to really thrive. I just want to make sure that during that transition, we're taking good care of our businesses, maybe opening up some of the back alleyways, moving some dumpsters, putting up some signs so that there's not interruption. And I think there's good planning going on at City Hall with that. Let me ask you about another topic that has been front and center in Northampton and is actually more front and center this morning since the headline in the Gazette is that the director for police alternatives in Amherst has now resigned, causing dis more disruption to that program and trying to get off the ground here in Northampton. Of course, we do have an alternative to policing program going on, and I'm wondering what your uh, position is and or your prognosis is with regard to the future of that program here in Northampton. You must be referring to the DCC. I am. And I can the say... The Department of Community Care. The DCC is off to an amazing start. I have personally dropped off a few people there who looked like they could use a hand, and they were so grateful to be there. My very first time, right after I dropped the person off, and they were so cozy and settled in and getting the help they needed, it started pouring rain outside right after I got them into that safe little nest, and it felt incredible. I encourage everybody, first and foremost, if you see anybody who might need a hand, drop them off at one Roundhouse Plaza right near Bombay Royale. But I'd say, in general, Northampton is doing absolutely all of the right things to position ourselves to move forward with alternatives to policing and to make sure that we're trying to do that in a smooth and gentle way that doesn't disrupt the community but just brings us forward into our best possible selves. You are on the ballot unopposed. I did get an email over the weekend criticizing you for not having run a vigorous campaign, which... I would appreciate your, your response to. I do understand no other candidate is on the ballot. What do you say to the criticism levied at you uh, by uh, at least one constituent of yours to be? Uh, what do you say about that claim that you have not been out in the community with regard to this campaign for Ward 3 City Council? Well, it couldn't be further from the truth, but it's true that you haven't seen signs yet. They are coming soon now that somebody is worried. I want to make sure that we show that, yes, we are here, and we do very much want your vote. We have been working very hard for you as a team, as my campaign Lawn signs coming to a house near you soon. I got it. Absolutely. And check out quaverly4ward3.com. We've been campaigning all along, talking to the press, talking to the neighbors, door to door. We've been doing all of the traditional things, so I want to make sure that people understand that, yes, we are here and have been here. I'm terribly sad to hear that somebody thinks we haven't done enough, but everybody's always welcome to reach out to me. Uh, in the paper this past week, a report that Jody Casper, the Northampton police chief, is a finalist for a police chief's job in another jurisdiction. Do you have concerns about Chief Casper leaving and what the leadership of the Northampton Police Department may be? I do. I think that's going to be a hard replacement for us. I think she is a very kind and measured person. 
And I think she's doing the work of a police chief uh, that we would expect and that we would hope for. I think she was a good fit for our community socially. I do understand how difficult it is to be a police chief in Northampton with all of the discussion about this. And you know, to circle back to one of your first questions, which was why am I good for this position? I'm a court reporter, which means I spend all day long in courts, criminal and civil, but I'm very familiar with really every, every aspect of public safety as it relates to police, prosecutors, defense attorneys, defendants, victims, and it is crunchy and complicated. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. It's right that it's difficult for us to have these conversations, and the future is going to be something we have to do with a lot of attention to our values and a pragmatic approach also. We've got to look at the whole picture when we're looking at public safety and policing, and we have to be kind to whoever our chief is. And we have to demonstrate that we're willing to be grown-ups in the room as we talk about these difficult issues. Uh, Quaverly Rothenberg, what is it that you think that the uh, council should be doing that it's not now doing? Well, I think we do have an opportunity to have a little bit more debate on the floor. I think we could do our mayor a good service by offering a little bit of pushback from time to time in the form of alternative ideas. I think there's a lot of work been on her shoulders, and this council has been very supportive of her, and we certainly would intend to support her as well, myself and fellow candidates. But we also want to do our very best to just really dig into the details and see if, if maybe it's perfectly fine and perfectly acceptable, and I think the mayor would agree it is, and it would be helpful to offer some more ideas when it comes to our budget, like DPW and how we allocate money for roads. Maybe we could revise some of these systems that we've worked so hard to create, but see if we can make them a little bit better. You mentioned Jim Nash, the city council president and the ward representative, ward three representative, longtime counselor, who I think enjoys a deserved, wonderful reputation in the city. Is that said, is Jim Nash taking a position with regard to your candidacy? Does he support you? Look for a lawn sign coming to Jim Nash's yard soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gregory Rothenberg, I was, must say, a, a bit surprised to see when you were sitting just outside the studio waiting to come in that you brought with you a rather large instrument. What is that sitting next to you, and what are you going to play for us? So this is my cello, and I should just tell you all quickly that I was raised to be a classical cellist from the age of three. and I Oh, no pressure. I really, really wanted to be uh, like a John Lewis, but I was raised to be a Jacqueline Dupre. And it took me a long time to figure out how I was going to pivot. And court reporting was really that way, because musicians make great stenographers. And as I said, stenographers can follow what's going on in civics. So I've made the pivot, but I'm still here playing some beautiful songs, and especially... Let me give a shout out to the new barn at Historic Northampton. Yes. Mm -hmm. You'll hear me playing concerts there. The acoustics are incredible. But let me play just a short song just to give you a flavor of really my heart. Yeah. Waverly Rothenberg and her running mate. <laughs>
Quavery Rothenberg, the candidate for Ward 3, Northampton City Council. I didn't know a cello could make sounds like that. Thank you very much for sharing that. That was really beautiful. Thank you. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. What is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures and conversation? And now, let us add dance. Momix presents Alice, a Momix interpretation of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland that sends you flying down a rabbit hole into a seamless blend of illusion, acrobatics, magic, and whimsy. The UMass Fine Arts Center presents Momix, Alice, Wednesday, October 25th at UMass. It's hard to picture a more imaginative interpretation of Lewis Carroll's story. Momix fills the stage with a marvelously dizzying and inventive flow of movement and activities. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Momix, in a new interpretation of Alice, Wednesday, October 25th at UMass. That is Larry Hott's walk-up music. What is it, Larry? Oh, that is from La Dolce Vita. We're talking about films here, so we've got to use film music. Okay. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Bill. Good morning. Good, Bill, good day Buzz. to you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, what film do you want to tell us about today? Well, first, before I talk to you about this film, I want to talk about uh, genre, the documentary genre. Okay. Um, when I teach, I always ask the class, you know, what kind of films make can be a documentary? And then the list goes on and on and on and on. He says environmental films. And we should point out Larry Hott is indeed the Florence-based Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. Please, Larry. I am, indeed. And you can say this biography, uh, the, there's fly on the wall, environmental, political films, it goes on and on and on. But one of my favorite genres, uh, it's a tried and true method for holding the audience's atten attention, is the trial by jury film. And I'd like to point out, we want your attention, and we have 12 people here in the studio. No, we don't. Okay. <laughs> are, they, are they angry? Are they angry men? <laughs> 12, 12 angry men. <laughs> okay. So The Holly is the film I'm talking about today. It is a documentary, <coughs> excuse me, um, about a boss, a gang leader in Denver, Colorado, who has uh, been to prison, come out of prison, and becomes a neighborhood community activist. 
and at one of the major rallies where he's getting the community get together to rebuild the center of this area. And the center of the area is called the Holly, H-O-L-L-Y. One of his enemies comes up to him and attacks him with a knife. And this man, his name is Terrence Roberts, <clears throat> goes and gets a gun and shoots him five times. Doesn't kill him. Right? So here you have this activist reform gang, excuse me, <coughs> reform uh, gang leader comes out of prison and then at a basically a rally to stop gang violence, shoots a man. That's the premise. That's the setup of the film. But it gets even better than that. So before we go into the film, yes. Did they have film? Was how how did they, how do they oh, show that? Oh, there's absolutely film because this is uh, you know this is the age of cell phones. So uh, oh, there's yeah. lots of cell phone footage. Also the security camera footage. Um, this this one of the interesting changes in in filmmaking. Um, we've talked about this before. There are entire films made up of cell phone uh, footage. There are several uh, films. There's a film called The Square about uh, <coughs> protests in in the Middle East that toppled governments. Uh, all the footage is just from the cell phones of, of people who were at the protests. So here, the filmmaker, whose name is Julian Rubenstein, is a reporter, works in New York City, but he grew up in the neighborhood. He comes back to cover this story when he hears about what happened. So let's hear a clip from the film, The Holly. Terrence Roberts is accused of opening fire at a peace rally he organized last night. The Holly has always been such a central place. It was a hub of the Denver chapter of the Black Panther Party. If Terrence was born 25 years earlier, he would have been a Black Panther. But because the Black Panthers were eliminated, there became a vacuum of leadership in the Black community, and Terrence uh, grew up in that vacuum. And then to come out and then launch one of the most successful not only gang prevention, but violence reduction programs. That's what it's all about right there. <laughs> and it stood for community, and it stood for prosperity, and it stood for uplifting. And it was very profound. It was the perfect day. I was ready to do my peace rally that morning. It was just going to be a way for us to talk about stopping the violence in the community. So Terrence Robbins says he wants to stop the violence in the community. And then he pulls out a gun and shoots a man five times. The man doesn't die, but he's paralyzed in a wheelchair. So you have already these two opposing characters, this, this peace activist who's extremely articulate and charismatic, the man in the wheelchair. And a little complicated, I would say, yeah. taking out a gun and shooting someone five times. Well, actually, he ran to his car to get the gun, so... It's uh, worse than what I just so, said. So uh, Bill, uh, being a lawyer who understands things like the difference between premeditated <laughs> and uh, second-degree murder and, and manslaughter, uh, he's, facing, he's facing attempted murder charges, right? Uh, he had the opportunity. He didn't have to go get his gun. Uh, there's a question of whether he even planted a knife on this guy's, um, uh, not his body. He's lying there wounded on the ground. But that's really not the point of the film. The point of the film is... What is going on among the gang members, the FBI, and the police in this city? And is there a collusion between gang members and the FBI to take this guy, Terrence Roberts, out? Right. So it is a complicated story. Uh, it's some, it reminded me very much of these um, 
Hollywood movies where you never really know who is the good guy and who's the bad guy. Uh, Terrence Roberts' father is a, is a minister who had been a gang member himself. It seems like everybody in this community is on one side or the other. There's the Crips and the Bloods. Uh, there's the ministers, the police activists. There's all kinds of characters coming from all kinds of different uh, groups that have an interest, somehow a power interest in the neighborhood. I was interested, Larry, when you s sent us the uh, email saying, this is the film you want to talk about, The Holly. And I said, oh my God, we're having a preview of Christmas. <laughs> Holly. But why? It's a confusing name because. Why, why pick that name for this because film? Because, all right, The Holly is this center of this neighborhood in Denver. Uh, and it's been known as The Holly because it was a, a shopping center and then it became a, uh, a community center. It is literally a square. Right, it's uh, like a couple of blocks wide, uh, and it has always been the center of activity in this community, and the shooting takes place at the Holly. And the shooter, and the victim, are the they know each hero, other. The heroes of this film. Well, I wouldn't call them heroes. Okay, in well, fact, it's maybe anti-hero. The vic the victim um, is a is somebody he'd known for a long time, somebody he had been friends with, but Terrence Roberts thinks that he, this guy has been sent to take him out because Terrence Roberts has the power in this community. So you see, the, the film is in two halves. The first half is building up to the trial. And this is an excellent way to make a, a documentary because you know that there's going to be a trial, and then you're going to get, get the backstory. Right? The other thing that I like about this film is Joshua Rubenstein, I mean, uh, Julian Rubenstein, the filmmaker, is the reporter, and he's in it. He's in many, many of the scenes. And this is a certain, oh, I mentioned the you know, genres of film. There's a genre of film where the filmmaker is in the film, sometimes as a reporter, sometimes just as a, a curious person trying to figure it out. This time, he's both. Right? It takes him eight years to make this film. He's following this all along. And you as a viewer go on this journey with him as he is trying to figure out what's going on. It even has that trope that's in all uh, police procedurals where you have the pictures on the wall and then the push pins with a red string tying things together. So as I understand the structure of the film from what you've said, is there's a teaser at the beginning of sorts, which is there's a trial coming. Right. And here's the background to the trial and here's the right. gang warfare and here's what's happening and here's how the FBI is involved, all of that. And then we get to a trial. Then we get to a real, you get to a real trial where you have real footage and you, and you can see the opening and closing arguments. Um, and it's edited in such a way that the tension is kept up throughout the entire almost two-hour film. Right? Uh, filmmakers dream about having narratives that, that will hold the audience. You know, a lot of the films that, that I've done are survey films, big historical survey films, and they are bare because you have to figure out how do you get the audience to pay attention to something that covers 200 years of history as opposed to this one neighborhood, a couple of key characters, Everybody who's, who they use in the film is charismatic, holds your attention. And then it has a very important subject matter, which is how do you get peace in these communities? We don't think of, of you don't immediately think of Denver as a uh, city that is troubled by gang warfare. You think, you think of Oakland and you think of Chicago and, and uh, Atlanta. But here in Denver, you still have it in a city and it's a smaller city so that you can actually get to know all the power players. So I'm recommend, recommending The Holly, which is on Amazon Prime and Vudu and many other platforms. Is this one of the films that's a 
uh, in the running for yes. Best Picture? Yes, it is. And it's one of the ones, that, you know, the title, The Holly, is not one that grabs your attention right away. Um, but it was in my queue. In other words, I was asked to look at As it. As a voting member of the Academy member. of Arts and Science. And it's a good, and that's why they do that, because you might not, you might overlook it just because the title doesn't immediately tell you what the film is about. And you recommending this film because I'm, I'm saying this and is, you're not telling us how the trial comes out. I'm not going to tell you how the trial comes out. <laughs> no, no magician reveals the secrets, and no, no film reviewer tells you the ending. And again, this is available at Amazon. Yeah, Amazon Prime and, and many other platforms. Called the Holly H O L L Y by Julian Rubenstein. Larry Hot, thank you so very much for Thanks, your, Bill. Thanks, for your insights and reviews. Really appreciate. It. This has been Cool Films with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. Larry Hot. He's so cool. <laughs>
And you have spelling problems? I'm not a great speller, but I think, I, you know, I've, I've analyzed this because I've been f- involved with this amazing event for many years. Um, I think it's a combination of things, and one is memory, and my memory doesn't work that way. Um, I think you have to have a memory that, that remembers um, these complicated spellings. And it also helps to, like, know languages and to be really well-read and, um, you know, that, that combination of things. But for me, I think it's memory. I just uh, don't – I there's a lot of words that I have to look up every – single time and some of them are words I use on a regular basis in my writing I, n- I can never tell you how to spell like words like occasion and practitioner those are two that I'll never get two C's and two S's and uh, how do you spell terrific T-E-R-I-F-I-C that one I seem to get I don't know why how do you spell B B is B-E-E or B-A if you're talking about a person's name but so yeah I'm here to talk about the Northampton Spelling the Northampton Education Foundation Spelling Bee we're in our 21st year which we lost a couple years due to COVID it is October 25th Wednesday at Bombex Center for Arts and Equity which is a change for this year and doors open at 5, and we'll have food sales wi- um, by um, Cooper's Corner slash State Street Fruit Store. Um, so you can come early and get some dinner. And the B will start at 6. Um, and the way it works, if, if, if anybody's not familiar with it, is we have teams of three people. And usually on and given given um, round or swarm, as we call them, of course, um, you have four or five teams up on the stage. And they consult over the word, and then they write the answer on a whiteboard. So nobody has to stand at the microphone and and spell a word, you know, orally like um, like they do in the kids' spelling bees. And there are well, there's a prize for um, the best spellers, of course. Um, and there's also prizes for costumes. A lot of people come dressed in costumes. Um, bee puns are um, very atrocious. Atrocious, atrocious <laughs> bee puns are everywhere. Now we're gonna have to ask you how to spell atrocious. Please I don't do, mention I do my name in this conversation. Um, oh, I know. You've got the perfect name for Please. the people. You really do. Um, and um, it's usually quite an intense competition. The actual winners um, are usually very good at this, um, much better than, than I can be. Well, this, NEF's Spelling Bee, is a fundraiser. So what happens with the funds? What, what are we raising money for? This is the primary fundraiser for the Northampton Education Foundation Small Grants for Teachers Fund. So all of the funds raised go back to the Northampton Public Schools, um, including Smith Volk, who's um, Smith Volk is eligible for these grants, um, in the form of grants to teachers. Teachers apply twice a year for small grants, once in the spring. The deadline is actually today for the um, fall round of small grants and then there'll be um, a deadline in April and the grants are are up to $3,000 for teacher initiated projects um, uh, through um, all grade levels in the North Hampton Public Schools and all the schools, as I said. And it can go up to $5,000 if it's a project between more than one, between two two or more schools. Could you give us some examples of, of what projects have resulted from past bees? Yeah, um, there's there's quite a range. This past year, we've um, had we've funded um, uh, anti-racism programs in the elementary schools with um, um, a, a local anti-racism educator. We um, had a grant that funded um, neurodiversity education um, and uh, in, in among the first graders to um, help um, neurodiverse students in Jackson. 
Jackson Street schools, um, f um, first grade to um, be more comfortable and also to help educate the neurotypical students in the class about the needs of neurodiverse, their neurodiverse compatriots in first grade. Um, and now I'm going to start blanking on um, other grants. But the grants um, are in the arts, they're in the sciences, um, math sometimes. Um, we've done a lot of outdoor programs, outdoor gardening, um, as I said, some anti-racism programs. Um, really, anything that a creative teacher can come up with, um, we hope to fund. Are these kinds of projects, Megan's in, ones that wouldn't be funded were not for NEFs? Exactly. Uh, these are projects that are not <coughs> in the school budget because of cuts over the years, but also some <coughs> of our things that the school budget never probably would have been able to cover. But it's um, NEF, it's in our mission, not necessarily to fund the, um, the nuts and bolts of education, but these extra special projects that are not in the budgets. You, Megan, no longer have kids in the Northampton schools. Why are you still so involved in this? Oh, well, it's important to me to um, help the kids that are coming up have the benefits that my children had. Um, my kids participated in um, a huge array of NEF grants, even before I even knew what NEF was. And it's very important to me that the next generation can. And as with most um, organizations in town, very often it's the people whose kids who have gone on to college and who have empty nests who have a little extra time to devote to things like being on the board of NEF or, or being the queen bee for the spelling bee. Whose brainchild was it to raise money via a spelling bee? Honestly, I don't know. It predates me. I do know that there was um, an NEF board member long ago who came up with the idea or saw something similar in um, at school in eastern Massachusetts, and that's where it started. Yeah, and Jean Hoos, uh, formerly yes, known as the years. Queen Bee, yes, ran Jean it for years ran and did a great job. Beautifully. We, we've had to have like five or six people take over um, Jean's job because um, it, was, it really was always too much for one person, yet she always managed to do it beautifully. And the Spelling Bee was initially devised, as I recall, mm -hmm. as being uh, funding for the small grants yes. program of NEF. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Because there, is a, yes. well, there are large grant yes, programs large and there are small grants that teachers say... The teachers write and propose. Maybe you want to spend a yeah, minute telling. Yeah, yeah, and we did. I just talked about the small grants a bit. And yes, these are all initiated by teachers who um, apply twice a year. And that's as opposed to our endowment grants, our larger grants, which are often, um, you know, in the tens of thousands. And those are often multi-year, multi-school um, grants. Right now, we are funding a grant through um, all out. Uh, it, all, I've blanked on the name of the organization, but it's a, a, a local outdoors education program that works with um, people with disabilities. And they have this amazing program where they're bringing in adaptive cycles into a JFK Middle School and the high school, and so that kids um, with varying disabilities can um, take advantage of being able to learn how to ride these cycles and, and have some fun um, outdoors programs, um, things along those lines as well. Bill Newman, you've participated in this. Is it, fu is it a fun night? No, it's miserable, Buzz. <laughs> it's really horrible. And look, we broadcast live, and we've done that for years from the Northampton Spelling Bee. We, co we cover it. Yes. And it's pretty funny Okay, when we announce, oh, my God, we're about to get a letter. Here we come. Here we go. Oh, it, it, that's my it, favorite it, thing about the Bee. I will say that my husband for years has doesn't come to the Bee. He prefers to stay at home and listen to WHMP <laughs> and the color commentary. He thinks that is the best part about the Bee. 
Yeah. Um, and then I get to go home and hear about all the um, the comments and which words you liked and, <laughs> and, and all of that. So right. And they're it's all fantastic. I, I mean, I, I do. OK. In, in the nature of disclosure, uh, we do get the list. <laughs> so we know what's yes. coming. And I look through the list and it's, oh, at the beginning, oh, this isn't so hard. And by the time we're on page four, I'm saying, uh, I don't know about this. I have a fantastic committee um, of, of myself and uh, Jose Baskin, Naomi Shulman, and Lisa Papadimitrio. And we come up with the, we find the words that have to be in the unabridged Merriam-Webster dictionary. And we use their definitions and we write the sentences. And it is so much fun to find these words and then to figure out like which one's harder, which, one, which ones are deceptively hard, which ones are deceptively easy. Um, that part is really a blast. And some people love it, and some people do not like to do this kind of thing <laughs> at all. But I love the, te the teams come together. They yeah. pay an entrance fee. They raise some money. There's some uh, food for sale, of course. Yes, there is food for sale. And there's a bake sale, and there's ice cream donated by Harold's for sale. Thank you, Harold's. Um, and um, all sorts of activities. It is. It is. Um, the MC is Kelsey Flynn, um, who does a fantastic job and has for years. Um, we have um, judges who are luminaries from the Northampton Public Schools, including our new superintendent and our. Um, Embarrassing if he got the spelling. Oh, wrong. Well, well, they, they don't the have spelling. to. Fortunately, she doesn't have to spell. They they get to. Uh, tell the spellers whether they're correct or not. Oh, yes, I say correct. Correct, yes. And um, we have um, word pronouncers who are great people from the community who um, are very good at articulating these words. Um, and it's just a whole lot of fun. Yeah, let me answer Buzz, Buzz's question more directly. This is really fun. It is. And the teams are fun and they're prizes for all sorts of things, including yeah. best costumes. Best costume. Also humor, because once you're out, um, you still have your whiteboard, and people will use their whiteboard to just make funny comments and hold them up or hold up funny spellings or promote their, their organization that they're with, um, and have, they have a good time with that. And Kelsey Flynn is always so much fun. We went yeah. to a Big Brothers Big Sisters fundraiser in East Hampton not too long ago. She was the MC and the greeter, and when we walked in, there was a red carpet, and she stuck a microphone in my oh, mouth fantastic. and said... Who are you wearing? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like her. It does. Again, the spelling bee is when? It is on Wednesday, October. Free, free admission. Free admission. Um, and I I've, I've have to add, for the first time, we ask um, anybody attending to get a ticket from the Bombex website. They are free. It's free tickets, but um, this helps um, Bombex know how many people will be there that night. Uh, there, will, there should be walk-up available as well. And it begins at 6 o'clock, doors open at 5, food sales start at 5. And is there a goal for money to be raised for this event? We usually raise after costs um, somewhere between twelve dollars and $15,000. So always um, the more the better. We're always happy to have more sponsors who pay $275. And are you still looking for sponsors at this yes, point? Yes, yes. And um, anybody can sponsor or look yeah, So you'll – if you, someone says, I want to sponsor a team – You'll find them a team. All you have to do is call up and yes. say, I'll pay the entry fee, and you get a team, well, and, you, we, and you get to name it? We will. Well, that's an interesting thing. Usually the teams name themselves, but if a sponsor wants to name a team, we'll let, them, we'll let that happen. Um, they can go to northamptoneducation.org, which is our website, um, and click on Spelling Bee, and there's a place to register if you want to be a sponsor, a sponsor with a team, if you want to be a sponsor matched to a team, whichever works for you, or just a team who's looking for a sponsor. And again, when is the spelling bee? Wednesday, October 25th at Bombex Center for Arts and Equity in Florence. Doors open at 5 o'clock and the bee starts at 6. It's terrific. Thank you so much, Megan Zinn. Be there or be square. Exactly. Be there, be square. And, and if you'd like, get yourself a T-E-E-M. 
There you go. It's teaming with teams. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. The person you're sleeping with. You know things about them that maybe you shouldn't know. Like, they got up last night at 3 and went down to the kitchen. How do you know? You have one of those mattresses that, well, let's just say you know things you really don't need to know. Sleep on a Theralux mattress from Talon Furniture. Wait, Theralux? What happened? All Talon Furniture ever talks about is therapeutic mattresses. Well, Theralux is simply Therapeutic's high-end mattress. What makes it high-end? It's a cooling mattress. If you're not sure what cooling mattresses are, we'll show you. A Theralux mattress has a 20-year warranty and a really high coil count, which means if the person you're sleeping with is tossing and turning or gets up at 3 a.m., you won't even know. And that's the way a good night's sleep ought to go, right? Therapeutic, and now Theralux. Come to Talon Furniture just down the hill from Amherst College. Just don't come at 3 a.m. We'll be sound asleep. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe, and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We have a, a very special guest who's talking about a very important matter, one that impacts on all of us is J.M. Sorrell. Um, hello, J.M. Hi, Bill. Hi, Buzz. Thank you for joining us. Bill, you've, had, uh, you've spoken with J.M. many times uh, about the issue that we're going to be talking about today. There's a hearing going on right now. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your previous conversations with J.M.? Well, let's start with what the organization is that you direct, J.M., and what the, well, it is, in fact, an organization dealing with life and death. So tell us what the organization is tell us where the campaign stands. Um, the organization is called Massachusetts Death with Dignity. I am the executive director. We're all volunteers. I have a board as well, and we are also kind of morphing into working as a coalition with other groups in the state. And the um, primary mission is um, to um, get legislation that will um, give people choices at end-of-life options, in, in particular medical aid and dying. Okay. This is a bill that's been in front of the legislature for years. Is this the year? 
I think so. And people sometimes tell me I'm delusional and overly optimistic. But I am. I, I don't. I don't think I'm being unrealistic. I mean, Governor Healy was really clear before she was even inaugurated that if this passes through the legislation, which is the way she thinks it should go, she will sign it. Um, we didn't know that with previous governor. Um, the Boston Globe, you know, endorsed this editorially. The poll numbers. We've done lots of polls. Keep going up, up, up. Um, with people from all demographics, and um, and I can give you some of that that information. And by the way, there's, we're not in a hearing right now. It's a legislative um, meeting with the media to prepare for the hearing. The public hearing with the Joint Committee on Public Health will be Friday from 9 a.m. until 2 p.m. So, J.M., tell us and tell our listeners who have not focused on this at least recently what the bill will do, what are its provisions, and why is it receiving increased support, not only in the legislature, but across the uh, across and in the court of public opinion? Well, and to, to that point, Bill um, and Buzz, um, at least the, the latest national poll suggests that 7 in 10 voters in every state support this. In Massachusetts... What's the this? What's the this? Support medical aid in dying, sorry. Um and 79% um, in Massachusetts um, overall. So the numbers are really, really high. We have um, a really large contingent in both the Senate and House. People who are sponsoring this bill, I think, brought to the floor, it looks like a win this time for sure. Um, I think the reason why, you ask a really good question, why, why is the support increase? Well, one thing we all have in common is our mortality. And the odds are we've been with people or we know people who have died. And I think the more people become aware of the needless suffering that um, people have when they're given a terminal illness, and by the way, you have to have a terminal illness, six months or less to live, to access medical aid and dying um, in Massachusetts if this passes. Um, But people um, realize that it's an individual choice. And I think the Massachusetts has a long history of autonomy and libertarianism in some ways and choice. And I think that really um, appeals to people. And people want to know that if they needed this when they're dying, they could access it. And equally important is that some people will not access this and will not choose. Um, And that's perfectly fine as well. Tell us a bit more about the safety provisions in this bill, because, of course, the criticism initially was, well, people who shouldn't have access uh, will do something precipitous and wrong and make bad decisions. There are all sorts of safety mechanisms built into this bill, and I'd appreciate if you would expand upon that. Sure. And in fact, when we did a poll last spring, um, 73% of the voters overall supported this. And as soon as they got information about the safeguards, it went up to 79%. So the safeguards are important information for people to have. The most important, I think, primary um, part is that you have to have a terminal illness and six months or less to live. So you are dying anyway. Nobody is creating some form of a death. Um, The next thing is you have to have the mental capacity, competence to understand what it means to access medical aid and dying, that you will be getting prescribed medication um, to end your suffering if you choose. Third, you have to take it yourself. Nobody can give it to you. It's not physician-assisted. 
it's not even a family member or loved one can't, um, you know, put the pills down your throat. You have to take, be able to take them yourself. Um, when you go through the process to apply for medical aid in dying, your primary care physician or um, or some physician needs to approve it. You need a second doctor to approve it, and you need somebody from psychiatry to also approve the process. So it really, there really are safeguards um, to ensure that somebody is making an informed um, choice and that they know what they're doing. And the physicians have to tell the patient what the about the medication, what the risks are with the medication, um, and you have to be an adult and a resident of Massachusetts. You can't be coming from another state in order to uh, be able to get this uh, service, if you will. I wanted to ask That's you, J.M., do you have, is there something in your personal history that leads you to be so passionate about this issue of the end-of-life options and the act that's uh, intended to uh, address it? I do. I mean, I have the work that I've done with people over the last 20 years with older <laughs> adults in death and dying. So that's been work, and that's been that's felt personal at times. But my own dad, um, when he was dying, he um, he ended up voluntarily stop. He stopped eating and drinking, which is called VSAT. It's kind of the one thing you can do that's legal, um, short of medical aid and dying. And it was really his choice, and he firmly believed that he was ready to meet his maker. He um, very devout Catholic, and didn't have any qualms about this as a Catholic. And the priest that came and gave him the last rites. In fact, when I asked him about it, he said, "Oh, I asked him what he thought about medical aid and dying, and he said it's everyone's choice, and that my dad was a good man and should be able to make choices he wanted to." So he was supportive of this. He saw my mom live a very agonizing last few days coughing up blood she was in hospice and getting the best care she could but it was an agonizing death and he did not want that to happen for himself and i so i experienced that with him james throughout one of the interesting aspects of the experience that other states have had with uh, end-of-life options is that the very large majority of persons who have the permission who have gone through all these steps, have addressed all of these safety issues, at the end, they don't actually use it. And I wondered if you would comment upon that. You asked the best questions. Um, so I, I work with a doctor who you probably know, Dr. Jeff Sessiger. He's a palliative care hospice doctor who's very supportive of this um, legislation as well. And one of the things that he has addressed is the emotional um, pain that people have near end of life, that people um, focus so much on some of the physical agony and pain that they um, sometimes don't think about the emotional pain as well. And so um, I think I agree with him that having the medical, um, having the access to medical aid in dying sometimes just gives somebody a measure of emotional peace that if their suffering becomes just unbearable, they can access it. And knowing that they have that is uh, is really, really important. I also want to say in all these other states that have had this um, on the books, no one has, there, there's not one documented case of somebody being exploited or taken advantage of who did not want to access this. And there's something like a decade of experience or more, right? More in Oregon. What, what is it, like 25 years? Um, but in other states, yeah, it's around, most of the states around 10 years or so. 
So finally, if people want to express their support or be involved in end-of-life option, options, um, what can they do? Well, they can, right now, it's crucial, they can submit written testimony to the Joint Committee on Public Health. And if they want to write to me about how to do that, um, I would be happy to give them information. They can write to me at massachusettsdeathwithdignity at gmail.com. That public hearing that's coming up on Friday, um, hopefully after that the, um, the bill will be passed to the um, Joint Committee on Health and Finance. It's been stalled there the last two times. So that's going to be another crucial hoop. We want it to move out of that committee and, you know, to the floor. So any help that people um, can, can um, in any way with the written testimony or um, contacting the legislators just to confirm that they're supportive and that this is necessary is important. Simple emails, phone calls, meetings, um, you name it, it, it all counts. And James Earl, we should point out that the local delegation, the Western Massachusetts representatives and senators, not only have been sponsors, but have been actively involved in trying to uh, see that this legislation is enacted. you want to comment on that for a second? Well, the primary leader in the Senate has been for a very long time, Senator Joe Comerford. She's the primary sponsor. She's passionate about this, and she has a lot of influence and, um, and a lot of drive behind this. Other senators and representatives, um, Lindsay Savadoza and others have signed on, uh, Mindy Dome, you know, a lot of the usual people around here have signed on as sponsors as well. So, yeah, Western Massachusetts seems to be leading on this. I'd also point out that those elected officials really appreciate hearing from constituents who support their position, say, yes, please fight on. We really want this. It's a piece of legislation whose time is not only come, is past due. And my final question, J.M. Sorrell, if, if people don't know how they can participate, how they can watch uh, and observe a hearing, how could they observe this particular hearing? What do they do? They can go on to the Massachusetts legislator, legislature site and um, and put in here and, 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 and type in hearings and all the hearings, the recorded recent ones and all the upcoming hearings are on there. And you can virtually participate Friday by just linking to a live stream. James Sorrell, thank you so much. This is really important work you're involved in. It's Death with Dignity. And... Uh uh, we really are, uh, I don't mind saying, totally supportive of this act. Thank you for joining wow. us today. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. You too. We are going to be back right after this break. We're going to have Philip Corman, the executive director of the community involved in sustaining agriculture, CISA, which wishes to expand its services. And we're going to tell you why and how right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. 
Earl Miller, the director of Amherst Community Responders for Equity, Safety and Service Department, known as CRESS, has resigned. Miller had been on paid administrative leave for the last two months pending an internal investigation. And at Monday's town council meeting, town manager Paul Bachelman announced that they would begin the search for a new director of the unarmed community responder program, which started last year. Three of the eight original members of the Crest Department have resigned. Miller has started a GoFundMe campaign to raise $10,000 to get through a, quote, tricky situation. East Hampton police are investigating a white supremacist group that left flyers on many East Hampton residents' lawns and driveways early Monday morning. The flyers were signed by the National Social Club and called for men of European descent to rally against the enemies of our people. Police are working to determine whether the flyers constitute hate speech or whether the only illegal act in distributing the flyers was littering. Last Saturday night, members of the same nationalist group held a protest and chanted anti-immigrant slogans outside of Governor Maura Healey's home in Arlington. The Greenfield City Council will be meeting tonight and will hear a first reading to repurpose $289,000 in funds previously authorized for police station upgrades for a new dispatch communication system. Fire Chief Robert Strain and Police Chief Robert Haig spoke to the Ways and Means Committee last night about the importance of replacing their current dispatch communication system that has failed during a recent storm, leaving dispatch to run off a portable system. Mixture of sun and clouds today with a light breeze, a little warmer, a high of 60 to 64. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Partly to mostly sunny on Thursday, the brightest day of the week with a high of 62 to 66. Scattered showers on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forest of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. 
Um, we are uh, going to be talking to Phil Corman. He is the executive director of, I don't know, everybody's favorite organization, CISA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And we have Phil on the phone. Hello, Phil. Hi, how are you doing? Doing great. Always glad to talk to you. Always glad to celebrate your mission. Always glad to talk about how you do what you do, you and your colleagues at CISA. But uh, for those who don't know, what is CISA? What do you do? So CISA stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, and really the name is what we do. Um, We try to decrease the distance between the people who grow our food, our neighbors, our farmers, and the rest of us who want food to eat every day to sustain our families and bring it into our households and have our meals. And we work with uh, over 250 farms in the Connecticut River Valley, and we try to make it more possible for farmers to sell to more people who are local and to make it more possible for locals to buy from their farms that are in the area. How old is CISA? Uh, we're 30 years, so we should be married and settled down already. <laughs> yeah, right. Have a, a bunch of little growers running around exactly, the living room. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, I think um, you've been involved in almost 30 years. Is that right? No, I've been involved only half the time, and there's been amazing people before me in this role, and, of course, there'll be amazing people after me. So it's kind of this beautiful organization that I have the – honor to sort of uh, hold for now. And people, sometimes I get confused because people do love the work of CISA, and sometimes I think they mean me, but that's not true. So, yeah, it's a good confusion to have sometimes day to day. So the mission that you just described of community involved in sustaining agriculture, it takes on all different sort of shades (coughs) and... uh, uh, colors in the way that it does it. And right now, I, I think uh, climate change has impacted on what you do and what your aspirations as an organization are. Is that right? Well, if you talk to any farmer, you know, every year, you know, we started, let me go back to uh, Hurricane Irene, which hit us in 2011 in October. And our <laughs> immediate response to that was to turn to the community and we raised $100,000 and we started an emergency farm fund, which now in turn has loaned out at 0% interest um, a lot of money to over 50 farms and has kept them going at times when they got hit by unpredictable weather, which has gotten wetter, warmer, and more unpredictable. At times it's been drier. Last year was a drought. This year, we had freezes, rains, and floods. We had hundreds of farms get impacted. And um, about a year ago, we were sort of clear that we were coming out of COVID, and it was time to think about where we needed to dive in deeper. And we took a look at challenges and trends, and we focused on a number of things that um, we think are going to be here for a long time that we need to lean into as an organization to help our community lean into. And that ranges from keeping farms farming, even through climate change, even through inflation. How do we make sure that farms are financially and environmentally sustainable? Uh, We're very clear that we want more people to have access to local food and making sure that all people of all income groups have that access. 
we want to always be there for the community groups that work with farmers and are representing and are led by communities of color. And again, we want to help everyone get more engaged in the local food system and farming. And so a year ago, we launched a, a campaign that's just exited the silent stage where we're our goal is to raise $1.8 million. We've raised 75% of that, and we are committed to doing more and being more nimble and responsive around all those issues I mentioned for a number of years into the future. So 25% of $1.8 million, that is to be it raised. It's $455,000 <laughs> Great. I wasn't going to do the math, but it's nice yeah. to know. This $455,000. And so right now, what is uh, CC, CC uh, hoping will be the source of that $455,000? Um, anyone can call me up anytime with ideas. Um, so um, this is the first campaign that we've done of this size. And right now, when you go public, the idea is... Um, you're reaching out to new people. And we're reaching out to new people at any income level, at any gift size. So my hope would be at the end of the day that $450,000 does not come in from one individual or company, but actually it's a whole variety, again, of people of different um, resource abilities. And that um, people who are giving now are indicating they care about these issues, and we want to keep them educated about these issues. We are talking with Executive Director Philip Corman. We're talking about um, the money that's necessary for uh, CISA to to fulfill its mission of strengthening farms and engaging the community, building the local food economy. We're going to continue this discussion right after this. Country boy. Well, I got me a fine wife, I got me old fiddle. When the sun's coming up, I got cakes on a griddle. Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. Thank God I'm a country boy. When the work's all More done, Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Banking with Greenfield Savings Bank is more rewarding than ever with our free You Choose Rewards. You Choose is our debit cards reward program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. 
YouChoose Rewards is free. And with YouChoose Rewards, you'll earn points that can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Link your GSB Debit MasterCard with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, and PayPal. It's easy to start earning with YouChoose Rewards. Just go to our website and sign up for YouChoose Rewards for your GSB Debit MasterCard. It's free. All you need to do is sign up and you'll earn rewards every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. You choose rewards, the free debit card rewards program that earns you points every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Sign up today at greenfieldsavings.com slash you choose. Greenfield Savings Bank, member FDIC, member DIF. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Executive Director Philip Corman of CISA. Um, and, and Phil, we're talking about uh, the mission of CISA uh, during its 30 years of existence. And we're talking about how it wishes to do more and do things bigger and do things better. Could you talk a little bit about what things we're talking about? Sure. So already we have received some of the resources from the campaign, and we've already invested them. We are Our goal is to double the number of seniors who are low-income who get a senior farm share during the summer. We pay farmers to grow food for seniors. Um, they get the money of the farmers during a time when they usually are not receiving any cash. They work with, uh, we hook them up with senior centers and councils on aging, and food gets delivered week, weekly that gets picked up by seniors. So currently, last year we did, we were having um, services that were for 500 low-income elders in the three counties. This year we were able to grow it to 700 people, and the goal is to get to 1,000. And in part, that's a response to a lot of things. One is, it's a broken community when food's being grown in your community, but people can't access it either because of money or transportation. Um, second, we did see hunger increase, and while we'll, we have no desire to be the Food Bank of Western Mass or the survival centers with their amazing missions, we do know that every time we can reconnect a broken connection, that is important. And farmers love growing food for people who can't normally receive it and seniors or elders who might have worked on these farms, in fact, when they were teenagers, love giving fresh, nutritious produce. So that's one way we're going to grow. We know we're also going to grow by um, providing more technical assistance to farms, including helping them find resources, whether it's grants, um, whether it's more business technical assistance. So we're going to, um, in the new year, we're going to, have a position that's focused on identifying more of these and helping farms who normally don't know about these opportunities and even helping them maybe write their first grant. Um, and then another great example of the way we need to be nimble and agile is around the June, uh, the July floods and rains. We ended up being able to step up and partner with the Community Foundation of Western Massachusetts and the United Way of Central Mass, along with um, the governor's office. And that is something you've reported on before, that it's been a private philanthropic effort that statewide has raised $3.3 million for farms. 
the first round already went out where 215 farms or so received about $10,000 each. The second and final round, the application is literally due this Friday from farms. And uh, that has a remainder of a little over a million available. And in that case, it won't be equal amounts. It will be more money will go to the farms with the greatest need. So, Phil Corman, I would like to ask you about the first word of the title of the organization, community involved in sustaining agriculture. There is an enormous amount of support here in the valley and in the hill towns for our farmers. And I'm wondering if you could give our listeners some sense of how big CESA is in terms of the number of farms, numbers of supporters, and the like. Um, I think community, there's a reason we started um, with that community word was because when we started up, literally, we did pull farmers together, and we but it wasn't just solely a conversation with farmers. We also had people whose commitment and day jobs had to do with working with farms. And we also had community residents who just deeply cared and were impassioned about this place that we call home. And we call it home, I think, literally because of the landscape, the food, the connection to farms, whether we realize that or not. Um, we work with over 250 farms in the three-county area, and we also have some farms further west and further east. Um, these 250-plus farms are selling food all the way into Brooklyn, to Boston, um, to Vermont. Um, we work with uh, businesses that source from these local farms, whether they're colleges, retirement homes, hospitals, um, and there's of probably a thousand people who financially support the work of CISA every year, not including all the businesses. Phil Corman, you you mentioned the United Way of Central Massachusetts, so, so the United Way is part of uh, the sort of uh, plan to achieve the goal that um, CISA set out uh, for itself uh, over a year ago to actually be able to perform to be better and to serve more people. So what role does United Way play, and what can people do to help in that regard? So um, the United Way of Central Mass stepped up. I think that there's a, uh, a loose association of United Ways throughout the Commonwealth, and I think uh, the United Way of Central Mass has a leadership role in that, if I understand that correctly. So they were best positioned. Plus, there were farms in the rains and floods in Central Mass, who also got impacted, plus they're just, they just always do more. So they stepped up. They're not receiving a penny of any of the donations that have come in for this fund, um, and it's been an incredible team that's worked on this with us and the United Way and the Community Foundation of Western Mass. So um, at this point, um, if people are still inspired to give money, they will take it, but they should give it on the soon side. If you go to the United Way of Central Mass and you type in, uh, you, you should see it on the home page there, or you could go to the CESA page around Flooded Farms, where we still list uh, the United Way Fund and also all the GoFundMes for the individual farms. Is there an outreach to farmers now to have their applications in by Friday 
so that they could uh, participate in this million or so dollars that's going to be distributed soon? Uh, part of the outreach is me talking with you and your listeners today. Um, every farm that did apply in the first round got an, an, an email. CISA has um, sent out two email alerts about it. It's on social media. But I always know that there's some people, some farms, who just, no matter your best outreach attempts, um, do not hear of something. So if you do know, if a listener knows of a farm that got impacted by the rains and the flood, can't hurt to mention it to them and encourage them to apply. Phil Corman, I'd like to know the big picture. And the question is, given all of the adversity that farms have had to face, our farms in our area, and the adversities they've had to face in the past number of years, many of those uh, of the consequences of climate change, what is the future of farms from your perspective, the future of farms here in the valley and the surrounding towns? I think, um, as it's always been, but maybe differently, it's a tough road to hoe, which is a play on a movie that was a film that was done 40 plus years ago about how hard it is to farm as a small farmer in the United States. I think climate change is a new curveball that is devastating in some ways. And I guess I have to go day to day and have this strong hope and belief, which I do have, which is we have incredibly smart people who are farming or are farmers. We have incredible soil and we will have to adapt. There are things we will have to do with this changing climate if we're going to grow food for ourselves. And that that may include growing things more from climate protection, having them in greenhouses and hoop houses. It may mean doing more no-till. It, it may be changing what we're growing. It may be changing what we're growing in the floodplain. So the these demands are being put on our farmers, and what we all can be doing is supporting our farms with the resources they need to to move through that learning curve and learn from each other, which is something CISA emphasizes when we bring farmers together, but also learning from farmers outside the region. Am I wearing rose-colored glasses, or does there has the local food economy grown? It seems to me I experience more local food available to me? That is a great question that there is no hard data to show. I, th I could point to trends that I've seen, and I'm sure you can point to some. I would say 10 years ago, we didn't see the number of smaller <laughs> farm stores that really are a, almost a secondary economy where farms can sell into other farms and farm stores, and it really was the saving grace through COVID for a lot of folks who could not afford to get COVID and none of us felt we could at that time. They were safe places to shop. It was great food, healthy for us, recently harvested and delicious. And uh, that whole network still exists. Um, we have had an increase in local buying from a lot of our colleges that I think uh, has made for good buyers for our farms. Um, and then there's always the convenience factor that local farms have to fight with, as all local business does, as 
more things have gone digital and more deliveries happen to your house. Well, what we do know is the community involved in sustaining agriculture, CISA, it's a wonderful way not just to support farms and distributors, but to support our community. Phil Corman, thank you so much for all that you do to make our community better and healthier and to support the agricultural endeavors that we all want to see thrive in this region. And for you listeners, thank you so much for joining us today on Talk to Talk. Like Phil Corman, walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. WHMP 